0: Welcome to Built to Go, a van life podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Wagg, coming to you from the College of Curiosity. This week, it's episode 63. This week, we'll discuss the thing that everyone's talking about, Nomadland, and we'll offer spoiler-free reviews of the movie and the book. We'll talk about what to do with dome lights, what fuse taps are, and how to use them, and we'll review a way to recharge your batteries without solar, shore power, or even a vehicle. Hello! Welcome back! It's been such a long time since I've talked in your ear. Actually, it doesn't feel that way at all because I've been doing YouTube videos all this week. I had originally thought that I would simply take the podcast and make a YouTube video out of each podcast, and I started doing that, but I realized that podcasts and YouTube are such different mediums that they each deserve individual attention. So I'm not going to do that. If you want to listen to the podcast, peck. Here I am listen to the podcast. But if you want to see YouTube videos, I am going to keep creating them, and they will often cover the same subjects that you'll find talked about in this podcast. So the YouTube channel is live now. You can simply go on YouTube and search for Built to Go, a van life channel, and of course I'll have a link in the show notes. But we have to talk about this right now, because it's the hot topic It's the movie Nomadland that has gotten the community all stirred up. Everybody's either loving this movie or hating it or not understanding it. It's either the most inspirational thing ever or it's boring and depressing. And I'm here to sort it all out for you because I think I know what's going on. So, first off, yes, I have seen the movie. If you would like to see the movie and you are in the U.S., you can actually do so for free. All you have to do is create a Hulu account, and yes, you will have to give them a credit card. And they will give you a free trial that'll be plenty long enough for you to watch Nomadland. You won't have to rent it or do anything like that. You can just watch the movie, and then after a week or whatever, you can just cancel your account, and you will have watched Nomadland for free. And I actually do recommend you do this. There's no other way to watch it legally in the U.S. right now other than to actually go to the movies and see it. But that's going to cost you some money, and, you know, it's still a little weird out there with COVID and everything. This movie is a sort of a pseudo-documentary of the nomad movement, which is tangential and overlapping with the van life movement, but isn't the same thing. And I think a lot of people are getting confused on that. The movie is the fictional story of a woman named Fern, who loses her job and finds herself with no way to live except to move into an old, beat-up van. And then she drives around going from odd job to odd job, such as Camper Force and the Beet Harvest, and all these jobs that are typically done by nomads. That's what the movie's about. The book is about the same thing, except it follows a real person. And that real person's name is Linda May, who is a character in the movie. What they did was take a book that takes nine hours to read and make it into a 90-minute movie. They took a bunch of characters and their stories and merged them into one person, and that person is Fern. So that's all it is. The movie is fiction. The book is not. But there's a lot of overlap. If you watch the movie and you watch a lot of YouTube, you're going to see a lot of familiar faces. Bob Wells plays a a reasonably large part in the movie. is certainly a poignant in the movie and he's also in the book and the people you see in the movie like linda may and swanky and several of the others are folks that you'll find on youtube and often featured on bob's videos and uh, by the way if you're not familiar with bob wells his youtube channel is cheap rv living he's kind of the guru of living in vans full-time And not the Instagram van life, no, the more nomad van life. That is folks who live in vans by choice, but they're usually older vans and they don't necessarily travel around a lot. A lot of people have seen this movie and said, oh, it's sad and depressing, and there are tough scenes in this movie. It's not afraid to show you what it's like living in a vehicle. While this is in no way an instruction guide for how to live in a van, it shows some of the realities of, hey, what's it like when you're sitting on a bucket and somebody knocks on the door? Or what's it like when your van breaks down and it's going to be $3,000 and they say, come back in a few weeks, and you have to explain that this is your house, Things like that. And so, if that's the thing you focus on, that can very easily seem sad. I mean, after all, this is a movie about folks who, in the late 2000s and early 2010s, found themselves with no retirement. They were reaching the end of their working age, had no retirement, their jobs were gone, all the savings that they had saved up in their homes and in their 401ks was wiped out in the Great Recession, and they're just trying to survive. So that is absolutely sad, and the movie does have sad parts. But there's something very inspirational about the movie that I think people miss. A lot of people think the movie is very slow, and it is not an action-packed movie. There's, there are no car chases, there's not a single gun, there's no murders. Uh, there is some full-frontal nudity, though, if that's your thing. But it's meant to be taken in as an experience. There are a lot of shots of just vistas and quiet moments with the main character just kind of reflecting on life. And what I found inspirational about it, and this takes a little bit of analysis, are the choices the main character makes. If you analyze the choices she makes throughout the entire movie, by the time you get to the end of the movie, there is absolutely an inspiring message there. Now, that said, one person actually accused this of being a a Hollywood version of van life that has no reflection on reality, which I think is completely wrong. This is not a Hollywood version of van life. There is nothing glamorized here. It's also not a movie about van life. This is a movie about nomads, these folks who travel around from job to job, and specifically older nomads who... That's really their only source of income that's available. Now, to focus on the book for a minute, I am um, I listen to the audible book. It's on audible, and if you sign up for audible, you can get a a free book, and that's how you know most of these things work. So you can actually get Nomad Land for free from audible too. The book reads a lot like a Mary Roach book. Now, it's not by Mary Roach. The book was written by Jessica Bruder, who is a journalist. She followed people around. She bought her own van and built it out and actually lived the lifestyle and wrote this story as a journalist. So it comes across like Mary Roach. Or as you're reading it, it feels a lot like Travels with Charlie or Blue Highways or even On the Road, although it's certainly not a Jack Kerouac vibe. And I... Feel like it's a great traveling companion. While you're driving down the road listening to this, it it, it absolutely is inspiring. Now, if your idea of van life is to have a hundred and fifty thousand dollar van and spend your summers down in Cabo San Lucas with your toes hanging out of the back of the van, tipping over the waves of the Pacific Ocean, none of this movie is going to resonate with you. This is completely a separate thing, and. That's why I say it's not a movie about van life. It is a movie about the nomadic movement, which overlaps with the huge Venn diagram of van life that includes wealthy trust fund kids vacationing, weekend warriors, people who work and live on the road because it's the most convenient thing to do, and people who work and live in their vans because it's all they can do. All those folks are living a similar life superficially But when you get deep, there are huge differences, and this movie and book focus exactly on one of those. So if you're not the kind of person who likes slow, thoughtful movies, and there's nothing wrong with not liking slow, thoughtful movies, this isn't the movie for you. But if you'd like to watch a movie that gives you time to really feel like you can empathize with the characters, I think you'll really like Nomadland. And I hope that you, like me, found the ultimate message inspirational. Now, if you watch it and you don't know where I'm coming from, let me know. Let's have a conversation about it, because I may have seen something that you didn't see, or vice versa. Maybe I am missing a big picture here, and hey, if I am, I certainly want to know about it. You can send me an email at jeff at built2go.com. That's two Ts, not three, not one. Or you can get a hold of me on Facebook in our Facebook group, which is Built to Go, a Facebook group. See, there's, there's a theme here. So go check out the movie or the book, and let me know what you think. Tech talk. Seen a lot of people complaining about their dome lights. Uh, usually the one in the back by the back doors. They'll they'll get their van, and there's this little light that's right by the back doors, and it turns on when the doors are open, and it shuts off when the doors are closed. But sometimes it takes time, or sometimes when you put on the alarm, that light comes on, and it it feels like it has a mind of its own. And a lot of people are asking what do I do with that thing? Well, let's talk about how it works, and then I'll give you some ideas of what how, what you can do with it. Dome lights have actually gotten a bit more sophisticated in recent years. It used to be simply that when you opened the door, they turned on, and when you closed the door, they turned off, and that's because there's a little switch by the doors that would turn them on and off. Then they started getting fancy, and they do this delay thing where they'll turn on for 30 seconds or until you start the engine. There's actually some circuitry involved in there. It makes it a little bit complicated. And with most of these, you can actually just turn them on. There's a switch to just turn them on. So if you find that your light is in a place where you don't want it, what can you do? Well, you can just get rid of it. If you unscrew that light, you'll see that it just unplugs. There's a plug, and you can just pop it out. And you can throw it away and then cover it over with whatever your finished materials are. You can tape up the plug if you're worried about it, but really, that's it. You're done. It's not going to hurt anything to do that. But I think, hey, you've got a working light there. Why not use it? Now, in my van, yeah, NV200, like I remind everybody every week for some reason, the light is actually well behaved. I like it. When I'm using the van as a van and I'm driving around at night, when I open the doors, that back light comes on and it's enough to see in the back and when I shut the door, it goes off and everything's fine. So I don't have a problem with mine. But if I did, I would simply rewire it. I would rewire it to do what I wanted. If I wanted that light to just turn on when I turned it on, or maybe from a switch that's attached to the other lights, that's how I'd wire it. It's not very complicated. There's basically three wires going to this light. One is the ground, one is the hot wire that turns it on, and the other is the signal from the doors saying, hey, the door's open. That's it. You can cut all the wires off, and honestly, you don't even have to know which wire's which because it's just a light bulb, you can just play around until it works. I I know that sounds cheesy. You can just hook a wire up to whatever you're going to do, a switch or the battery or your fuse block or whatever, and a wire to ground, and then play with them on this light bulb until it does what you want. (laughs) I know I sound stupid saying this, but that that really is how these work. Uh, In mine, I put in an LED light because it's brighter and it uses a whole lot less battery. And... Here's the other thing. Mine is wired to my starter battery, which obviously is how it is from the factory, because there's only one battery when you get it from the factory. You can rewire them to the leisure battery, but I'm going to suggest not. If you can find a way to live with it the way it is, you have a backup just in case your whole rear system goes dead. It's 4 o'clock in the morning, all your power's out, all you have to do is open the door and you have light back there. That's a nice thing. So, No reason to be afraid of these dome lights. I don't really understand why people have such a hard time with them, but know that you can master these things. You can do whatever you want with them. They're just freaking light bulbs. Product review. What if you could power everything in your van without solar, without a split charge relay or a battery to battery charger or an isolator or shore power or a generator or any of that. Nope, not talking about windmills, not talking about water wheels. Nope. I'm talking about a hand crank. (laughs) Yeah, I know. I I don't mean to tease, but I was looking into this idea because you can actually produce power just by turning a crank. And there are products out there now that make this very easy. So there's this product on Amazon right now. And of course I'll have a link in the show notes, especially since it's an affiliate link and it's called the Y-A-E-Tech Portable Generator. That is Y-A-E. T E K, I hope that's how you pronounce it. Of course it's from China, you don't even have to ask. This thing works very simply, it's a handle on a box. It's not that big, it is maybe the size of a box of Pop-Tarts, and the handle sticks out and you crank the handle and it produces power, and it actually is fairly sophisticated in how it produces power. It's regulated, that means that you can set the voltage so that you can use it to charge your cell phones, which is five volts, there's actually two USB ports on the thing, or you can use it to charge your batteries. You just slide it over to 12 volts and charge that way. Now there's actually a little bit of a problem with that, and this is one of my disagreements with this thing, is that setting it at 12 volts won't actually charge your batteries. Batteries have to be charged at higher voltage than they need. So if you have a quote unquote 12 volt battery, you want to charge that over 14 volts. So this thing actually may not be able to do much with that. But let's let's put away the big fish for a while and focus on the small fish. Can you charge your cell phone with this? Yeah, absolutely. I saw tests on YouTube that showed how many amps it puts out and it puts out as much as a high capacity charger. One of those four amp chargers, you know, the new ones, the new high capacity chargers. If you crank this thing two times a second, which isn't that hard, You will produce as much power as one of those high-capacity chargers. And so you might ask, well, how long would I have to crank this thing in order to charge my phone? And the answer is, exactly the same amount of time as if you had it plugged in. Because basically, while you're cranking this thing, you are producing the amount of power that one of those chargers produces. So, of course, it's going to take the same amount of time if you have something plugged in. And, you know, you want to crank this thing for half an hour to charge your phone? There are definitely times in my life when I would have wanted to, when my phone was completely dead. I mean, certainly, if you did this for 10 minutes, you'd have enough charge to make a phone call, and that could be huge. So this is only a $37 device. This isn't hugely expensive. There are others that work like little exercise machines. They actually have foot pedals, and they're like little miniature exercise bikes, except there's no wheels or handlebars. You just sit at a seat and do this. They produce a lot more power, but they are also like 260 bucks. And if you're going to spend that much... I think you should just get a little jackery or something, because instead of worrying about making your own power, just have a bigger reserve. So I think the thing is an interesting idea. I'll have a link in the show notes. I might pick one up. And again, I'll be honest, I haven't actually tried this thing. I've just watched a lot of videos about it. But I think it's a simple, interesting little device, doesn't take up a lot of space, and if you went out with this thing, you would absolutely know that you could charge your phone if you had to. And that's worth a lot, especially considering we use our phones for every these days it's not exactly hiking friendly you know imagine a box of pop tarts for hikers is a huge thing but it doesn't weigh very much so if you really wanted to you could strap it on the top of your pack anyway link at the show notes i think it's an interesting idea and it's uh, something we don't hear people talk about too much in van life and uh, maybe we should A place to visit. So, Illinois. Poor Illinois. Illinois gets a bad rap when it comes to visiting. Yes, it's the second flattest state in the country, and it's really, really flat here. And um, if if you're not aware, I live in Illinois. I live in Chicago, which some would argue isn't Illinois. Certainly, the rest of the state feels like Chicago isn't part of Illinois. But anyway, Illinois is deceptively interesting. There are actually lots of interesting things to see and do in in Illinois, including Route 66 starts in Illinois, and you can travel Route 66 and see a lot of amazing things just like you can see out west. They're just different amazing things. But I'm not going to talk about those. I'm going to talk about uh, this place that I stumbled across. It's called the Raven Grin... Um, shit. It's called the Raven's Grin Inn. It's maybe 60 miles north of Davenport or west of Rockford, and there's really not much there in Mount Carroll, except for this place, and this place is worth driving a couple hundred miles to see. The story is that this gentleman by the name of Jim Warfield bought this old Victorian hotel, five stories, for $3,000 in the 80s. And then he started building and building. But we're not talking about a Winchester mystery house kind of a thing here. This is much crazier. He built this, basically, I guess you could call it a haunted house. Or maybe a fun house. And it's really strange. Uh, When you walk up to this place, you are maybe convinced that it's really haunted. It's not that the experience is so authentically haunted if that even means anything it's that if there were a haunted place this just might be it it's definitely the kind of place that once you go through the doors you're wondering if you're ever coming back out again it actually reminds me of the movie saw (laughs) although it's nowhere near as gruesome it's just that same vibe it kind of goes like this And i recommend you go with a bunch of people if you can. If you can go with like six or seven people, that's ideal. You go in and you sit in this front room. And you sit on these old chairs. And they're actually chairs from old cars. And Jim, actually the guy, he comes out and he tells you a story of the building and how it was built and the ghosts that live there. And then invites you to see the next room. And the next room. And the next room. And the rooms don't end. In fact... The rooms get crazy, like, how can this room exist in this house? There were two times I absolutely thought we must have taken a secret elevator or somehow transported to a completely different building, because what I was seeing could not possibly be in the building I was in. It was bizarre. And the whole time you're touring the house, you're kind of alone, But not really, because as you're walking through the house, Jim has secret passageways and he follows you only to pop out and kind of do a little jump scare at you. Or maybe a tentacle will drop down from the ceiling and brush against your face in the dark. It is not terrifying. I don't want to give you that impression, but it is definitely strange and a little bit spooky, and possibly even eerie. Let me get the thesaurus here. Yes, it's all those things, and it's a lot of fun. And that's the important part. Now, they're having a hard time right now. The pandemic came. The whole season last year was gone. And of course, this is the kind of place that around Halloween, they're probably making 90% of their money around Halloween. So right now, they're currently closed, waiting for COVID to allow them to open again. And I'm bringing them up now because I know a lot of folks are planning their trips for the coming year. Well, if you're in the Midwest... Take some time and go check out the Raven's Grin Inn. See if they're open. You can get tickets. It's only 15 bucks. It's not a huge expense. And it's one of these places that's going to stick with you forever because it's unique. I have been through Haunted Houses. I've been to House on the Rock. I've been to the City Museum in St. Louis. I've been to these crazy places. This is something different and just a little bit creepier than any of those have managed. So again, it's the Raven's Grin Inn in Mount Carroll, Illinois. I'll have a link in the show notes. Please show them some support and go visit when you can. Tales from the Road This tale isn't so much from the road but it's road adjacent because it took place in a garage. Back in the 80s, one of the many, many, many jobs I had was installing cellular phones into cars and trucks and the like. And back in the 80s, a cellular phone wasn't something you put in your pocket. Oh, no. This was something that weighed 40 pounds, and there was a head unit that went up in the front of the car that was big. I mean, it was. It had a full-size handset with a coil cord that went to a box, and that box had a big, fat cable that would go all the way back in the trunk and connect to a thing the size of a briefcase. That was a mobile phone or a cellular phone back in the day, and it took a few hours to install one of these things. And I did that for a few years, and I liked it, and I learned a bunch of stuff that has been useful for me in van life doing that. And one of the things I learned was because of a coworker who was busy under the dashboard messing with the fuse block. Now, we used to always use fuse taps to get power out of the fuse block. And I should probably do a little piece on fuse taps, but they're basically these things that wrap around the fuse and give you power. And then you add another fuse and power whatever you want, such as, oh, maybe a cellular phone. And some of these vehicles were easy to work on, and some of them were hard. Mercedes were weird because their fuse blocks were often under the hood. Dodge vans were a little strange because their fuse blocks were way over by the glove box. And then there was the 77 Corvette. This thing's fuse block was to the left under the steering wheel, where many of them are. But because of the shape of this very strange car, it was in this tunnel where your legs go. And you needed to be very small to climb in there and be able to work on it. I could just barely manage it. But my coworker, Arthur, was a little bit smaller, and he did it much better. So he would often, if we ever had a Corvette come in, he would often say, hey, let me do it. And I'd be like, hell yes, I'll take over the F-150, you work on the Corvette. And everything was fine. Arthur was a very experienced installer, and he was just recently married. And that's part of this story. And he was in there working away. And uh, you have to use crimpers and stuff under there. And it's kind of tight work. And he's in there. And all of a sudden, I hear, Ow! Ah! 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 Thunk! And I run over. And I'm like, geez, was there a snake under there or what? And he pulls out his hand. And his ring is half melted. There's a big melted portion of his ring. (laughs) And what had happened was... 77 Corvette doesn't use the fuses that we're familiar with, the ATC-style fuses that plug in. You know, they have plastic and there's color. They use the old bus-style fuses, which are glass and have metal on both sides. And in those fuse blocks, there's a ton of places where there's just hot power just sticking out. And he had managed to get his hand in a spot where he was touching a hot contact for the fuse and the frame of the car. Now, you might be saying, well, the Corvette's fiberglass, what difference does it make? Well, under that fiberglass, there's a metal frame, that's what's holding the car together, and that frame is grounded to the battery. And if you put hot and ground together, and a big conductive piece of metal, say a gold wedding ring in the middle, you create, oh, what, a toaster? A soldering iron? A very hot ring of metal around your finger that will weld itself in place so you can't get it out. It took him a few good seconds to actually yank his hand out, and he wasn't able to remove the ring because he actually had a burn around his finger. I don't know exactly how it happened, if he sat it there and didn't realize it was getting hot or what. But I learned since then that whenever I'm doing that kind of work, I wear my silicone wedding ring that I also have, and I put my gold wedding ring in my pocket. So a little tale from the road there that hopefully is a cautionary tale to you. Do not mess around with metal things near your fuse block. It is a very bad idea. Okay, resource recommendation. I just came across this thing that I think is really cool. It's called... Adventure Magazine. Yeah, it's a little punny. It's like adventure with the word van thrown in there. So, Adventure Magazine. And it's a van life magazine. Like an old, you know, remember magazines where you flip through the pages and stuff? This is one of those. Now, it's mostly online, but it's done in the style of a paper magazine. When you get your copy of the magazine in email or you click on it or however you get it, You flip through the pages just like reading a magazine. It's nice and retro, and the content is great. Honestly, it's kind of broken up like this podcast is. You have different sections of things. Like the episode I was just looking at has a big section on all-terrain tires, and then another one on crossing an African river in a Volkswagen. It's really nice to see, and it's a great thing to read while you're maybe in the bathroom. Or in bed. Or wherever you happen to be. They have just come out with a print edition that you can get that does cost money. But the digital version, which is the complete entire thing, is absolutely free. And I highly recommend you take a look at it. But a couple of caveats. This is a European magazine. It is very European focused. And if you see them talking about things like, say, a 1990 Ford Transit, and you're thinking to yourself, there weren't any 1994 transits. Remember that they were in Europe, and that's what they're talking about. Also, it is a German publication, so it is in English and German. There's advertising in there that's actually poignant, and uh, I got a print copy. I haven't received it yet, uh, because it's coming from Europe. It's going to take a while. I'm actually looking forward to having a actual magazine dedicated and devoted to the kind of stuff we talk about here on the podcast. So I'm going to give you their Instagram address if you want to check them out. Because they have links, but they're complicated. So on Instagram, they are at... Adventure Magazine, so that's Adventure Magazine, replace the first E with an A. QA. and a boy, there have been a lot of questions about this lately, and it's one of these issues that no matter what I say, I'm going to upset somebody, so, eh, that's never stopped me before. Should I put a vapor barrier in my van? <laughs> in your house, or at least on most modern houses, that the way they're built right now in the U.S., they will put up... OSB or some kind of wood on the outside of framing and then they will cover that with Tyvek Tyvek is the vapor barrier in that case, and it's meant to keep moisture from getting in the house through the wood. Basically, it's meant to keep the wood from getting wet from the outside of the house. And some folks think you need to do the same thing in a van, but in reverse. That is, on the inside of your van, you frame it out with wood and then you cover it with a vapor barrier so water from inside the van won't get into the wood and the insulation between the wood, keeping it nice and dry. That's the theory behind vapor barriers. And if you look, you will find experts absolutely swearing that a vapor barrier is necessary to keep your van dry. But I disagree, and many others do too, and this is why. A perfect vapor barrier is nearly impossible. And if you don't have a perfect vapor barrier, you're going to get moisture in behind the vapor barrier, and then it's going to be really hard to get it out. My thought is that you don't have a vapor barrier, and you let whatever is inside your walls absorb moisture, and hopefully you're using insulation that is not a problem with absorbing moisture. And then as it dries out in your van, say you're using your ventilation like you're supposed to be, that moisture leaves your insulation and then heads outside the van. I think that's a much better approach. You know who agrees with me on this? All RV manufacturers. RVs do not have vapor barriers. RVs are also built very cheaply, so that's not the greatest argument in the world. And they use fiberglass insulation, which is bad. That was not an ad for wool, by the way. So that's my take on vapor barriers. Skip it. Don't do it. Okay, folks, thank you for listening to episode 63. Just a quick reminder, I am trying to start a YouTube channel, and of course that requires likes and subscriptions, and I promise not to beg constantly. But hey, if you could take a look at Built to Go, a van life channel on YouTube, and hit that subscribe button, I would appreciate it, and I promise not to keep harping on that. Music, as always, is by Simon Wagg. And until next time, remember what Lao Tzu said. A good traveler has no fixed plans and is not intent on arriving.